It's an honor to be here, and it's an honor to be here, especially on the Sunday where you all mark 10 years of Josh's ministry. Uh, I know, as you do, you're very aware of the ministry he's brought to your local body, but he has also left a legacy and is leaving a legacy throughout all of the greater Phoenix area and beyond into Arizona. And uh, so there would be many, dozens, if not hundreds of other people who would be grateful for your ministry, Josh. So thank you so much for all you do for Trinity, uh, for our church in Gilbert, for dozens and dozens of other churches. We are a much better city with you in it. So I'm glad you're here. And if you're here for Thanksgiving, welcome to our winter. Don't be jealous. Okay, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians 2 is an old book. It's a timeless book written over 19 centuries ago. And by comparison, the United States, we're fresh out of the wrapper. But this is timeless. As we read, we're, reading, we're looking at Colossians chapter 2. Verses 8 through 15, and it's going to work best if you have your Bible close. Recently, the Oxford English Dictionary, which is the authoritative record of all the English words, has added a word that, says, that is called FOMO. It's F-O-M-O. F-O-M-O. It stands for the fear of missing out. A recent study from Time Magazine says, here's what FOMO means. It's that uneasy and sometimes all-consuming feeling that you're missing out, that your peers are doing in the know about or in possession of more or something better than you. Under this framing of FOMO, nearly three-quarters of adults, young adults, reported they've experienced the phenomenon. Time Magazine goes on and says, it is certainly not a good thing. And it leads you to check social media again and again and again so that you don't feel out of the loop, so that you know you're okay and you don't feel left out. Sometimes that alleviates the anxiety, but often it doesn't. And either way, it drives you to keep running around the digital hamster wheel to feel okay with yourself. Now, the word FOMO might be new, but the idea that there could be a way in which you are missing out is not. Just has a new label. Humanity has, for eons, been afraid of missing out long before social media, long before we had the ability to communicate to vast numbers of people at the tip of our fingers. We've been afraid of missing out. Here's how it can look for Christians. If I follow Christ wholeheartedly, if I give every, everything of myself to him without reserve, I might miss out. And you have this little bit of fear that jumps up. If I follow Jesus, what kind of dreams will I have to set aside? What kind of hopes will I have to put to the side? What will I, what will I miss out on? And there can be this, this slow, subtle simmering fear that kind of jumps in at the most inopportune times. Our culture, which is, as verse says, a philosophy of empty deceit according to human tradition, not according to the wisdom of Christ, our culture says, do what will make you happy. Better health, have the right friends, get enough money, have a good education, get the appropriate respect, 
have a happy family, gain professional rec recognition, and you'll be happy. You won't miss out. But essentially all we're doing is jumping on that hamster wheel and going around and around and around. That's the, that's the philosophy, the empty philosophy that we're going to turn away from here this morning. We're going to jump off the hamster wheel. We're going, to do, we're going to look at Jesus. The scriptures this morning draw our attention away from ourselves and onto another, onto Jesus. We are simply unable to understand who we are, who we are supposed to be, and what we are to do unless we first start with Jesus. The most important thing about you, if you're here as a Christian this morning, is not you. It's Him. And if you know this, you know you can't miss out. You can't miss out if you have Christ. You want meaning in your life? We're going to go again to Jesus. Do you want to be a part of something bigger? Let's go to Jesus. Do you want to make sure you don't miss out? Let's find ourselves in Christ. Because we can't miss out if we have Jesus. Four simple points this morning. First, we find in, in verse 9, Jesus is. Who is Jesus. Look at verse 9 in chapter 2 of Colossians. For in him, that's Jesus, in him, now Paul is about to tell us who he is, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. So who is Jesus? Jesus is not God Jr. He's not God in training. He's not, if you went to Chick-fil-A, God in training on his shirt. That's not how, he's not a Padawan learner. He is, he is God the Son. He is not merely like God or similar to God, but he is God-like. He is God. Jesus is the whole fullness of deity. Now notice where that deity dwells. It dwells in his body. Now that's entirely appropriate for us to think about here on the first Sunday of Advent. The, the God has become man and dwelt with his people. Now in the ancient world, Kings built temples and ma massive and grandiose to, to hold their gods. These majestic and ornate buildings were constructed on a colossal scale. So worshipers, when they would walk in, they would understand how very small they were and how very big their God was. It's reversed here in this text. The big has become small. The fullness of God the fullness of deity now dwells bodily. That's unexpected. In the Old Testament, the people of God had a temple too. The temple was there, and that was the place that God met his people. But nowhere in the Old Testament do we read, for in the temple, the whole fullness of deity dwells. Quite the contrary. The scriptures in the Old Testament Go to great lengths, great pains to help us understand that mankind lacks the ability to construct anything that could hold the transcendent God. Solomon, who built, this first, who built the first temple, knew this. And after he finished the construction, he said in 1 Kings chapter 8, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. We might say the universe. How much less this house that I have built. 
God says the same thing about himself later in the prophet of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 66. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me and what is the place of my rest? Now, if no building could hold the fullness of his deity, no matter how grand, no matter how ornate, no matter how, how lavish, how surprising is it here for us to see in verse 9, for in him, in Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. One of the things we've lost in American Christianity is the amazement that God could become man. We're used to it. We all have nativity scenes in our homes with the baby lying in a manger. And it's not so amazing anymore. And that's to our detriment. Jesus is the whole fullness of God. But we still haven't been given a reason yet we need not fear as Christians of missing out. We've seen him in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. We've seen who Jesus is. Now we see that Jesus fills. Now don't look down. If you were to think, okay, now, now we already, we've already been tipped off a little bit, but we know that Jesus, he the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily now. Now, if we think, what would Jesus fill? Like, fill with his presence. Verse 10 is one of those sentences in the Bible that we can read in just a few seconds. But we couldn't, we, we're not going to be able to understand for centuries. Look at verse 9 again, and then we'll look at verse 7. Verse 9, for in him... The whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him. What? That's unexpected. Have you ever been to a, a circus? I hate circuses because I'm allergic to everything in there. But if you've ever been to a circus and you have trapeze artists going back and forth and maybe somebody up on a high wire and the crowd all of a sudden gasps. Have you ever seen something happen where somebody goes up really high and then you think they're going to fall and then at the last moment they're grasped and the crowd goes, oh! A collective gasp. Sometimes I think that's how we, we should respond to verse 10. And you have been filled in him. Now get the flow here. These seven little words hold so much. Jesus is God. We know that. No question about it. He is God embodied, and you have been filled in him. Now, is Paul saying we're divine? No. But he is saying something that we had better pay close attention to. We're not filled by him, but we're filled in him. It's kind of weird that he would say that. Wouldn't it be more natural for him to say you have been filled with him and not in him? Here's the idea. The point is not that we have a little bit of Jesus. Let me run down to the QT. I'll take 30 on 7, and I'm going to be filled. That's not the idea here. The idea here is this. You are filled with Jesus because you are in Jesus. You are associated with Jesus. You are in 
him. You are filled because you are in him. You are filled, Christian, because of your association with him. None of us can lay claim to deity this morning, but all of us can say, if you're a Christian, I am so closely associated with Jesus in whom the whole fullness of deity dwells that I am in him. We cannot, we must not conceive of ourselves as separate from him because if we do, we do not understand who we are. Any philosophy, any teaching, any belief, any preference, any conviction that takes us away or moves us on from Jesus is not good. Let me just tell you, there are no deeper things out there than Jesus. We need to examine our preferences and ensure that we don't hold a preference more strictly, stronger than we hold our convictions about Christ. We must be stringent. We must recognize that we're who we are because of Jesus, not because of our education, not because of whether we vaccinate or not, not because of how much money we get or what we think about the environment or the government or politics or diet, but because who we are in Christ. Fundamentally, that is what's, what unites every real church, and you are a real gospel-believing, God-glorifying church. But notice something else here. Look at verse 10. And you have been filled in him. I don't want to give a grammar lesson for two reasons this morning. First, I stink at grammar. Second, it would be super boring. But I'll just tell you this. The you in verse 10 is plural. So it's not, my family's all from Texas, so go like this. It's not, and you have been filled in him. It's, and y'all have been filled in him. Or, and all y'all have been filled in him. Or if you're Philly, and you guys have been filled in him. The idea here is that you, plural, have been filled in him. So it's not just that you don't know who you are unless you find yourself associated with Jesus. Let me tell you something else. You don't know who you are if you're not associated with Jesus and his people. This is one of the many places where the scriptures clearly teach that Christianity does not make sense in isolation. All genuine believers must be knit into a particular church. Not the universe. It's really easy to be a part of the universal church because the universal church never comes over for a small group and messes up the carpet. The universal church never sins against you. But our call here this morning is to recognize that here we see that we each individually are called to be knit into a particular church. You are called to be knit in to Trinity Bible Church. Have you ever heard someone say, you don't have to really be a Christian. You don't have to go be a part of a church to be a Christian. The Bible never says that. Nonsense. It assumes that. That'd be like saying, well, the Bible never tells you to breathe. Try it. That's true. The Bible doesn't say to breathe. Try stop. Don't breathe for a little while, and then we'll have your neighbor revive you here in a moment. All faithful Christians must be a part of a local church because the Bible assumes that. To be faithful, you must be a part of a church. Now, you might think, so Jesus, okay, we're getting this big picture of Jesus. We've got a picture of Jesus. He's, he's, 
He's, he is God. He, he, the, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in him bodily. And now, because of our association with him, um, we are filled in him. And then we have a jump in verse 10 that we need to pay attention to. And you, plural, and you guys, have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now, Jesus is telling us, even though our particular churches don't seem amazing and impressive, right? We don't have CNN knocking the door down to try to see what's going on inside. We don't have Fox News watching to see what's happening in here. We don't have MSNBC knocking on your doors to say, what's happening? We can't imagine. Now, they all should, but they don't. The reason they don't is because they don't recognize we are connected to Jesus. And we might think, well, we're not about something very important. False. Because we're associated with Jesus, because he is the one whom we are in, we need to see that Jesus is not some measly little regional manager over 35th and Peoria. No, he is what? The head of all rule and authority. He's not a little regional manager. He works from 8 to 5 and then gets the weekends off. He's not a petty chieftain. Trinity, you serve the head of all rule and authority. That's who you're associated with. When you associate yourself with him and others, it doesn't seem like it. But local churches, local churches are associated with the one who has all power. He is the head of all powers and authority. Now, Jesus, we're getting quite a picture of Jesus. Jesus is fullness of deity. Jesus fills. And we know who he is, and we know that he fills, but we still haven't talked about how the fear of missing out might be something that would be active for us as believers. Well, now we take the next step. It's who we are in Jesus. Look at verse 3, or I'm sorry, verse 11. In him, that's again, in Jesus, also you have been circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Now, if sometimes we have words in the Bible, they show up and we read them because they're in the Bible and we don't go, that's weird, right? That is just the strangest thing to go from Jesus being the rule over all authority all powers to a conversation about circumcision. Now, let's just, let's just stop and say, that's super weird. Now, either it's weird because it's just weird, or it's weird because there's a reason it's in here. It's to get our attention. We sing songs about Jesus' authority, but we don't sing songs about circumcision. I hope. <laughs> but why is it here? Whenever you see something strange in Scripture, you don't go, well, that's weird. I got to go. But you say, why is this here? Now, remember, in the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign that God put on his people, a mark of his people, as different from everyone else. It was a sign that, a sign on all males that they belong to God above. Verse 11 is clear now. The sign has shifted. Circumcision here is not a physical marker. What is it? It's a circumcision made without, quote, hands. How are God's people marked out now? He marks them. How? How? Again, look at verse 11. Let's see how he marks us out. 
In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. We don't really know what he's alluding to yet. Here, then, we get it in the second part. By putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Oh, I see. What Paul is saying is the circumcision he's talking about is Christ's death. What marks you and I as different? The death of Christ. He didn't just have a bit of his flesh removed. He sacrificed his whole body. So to say, in him also you were circumcised, is to say, when he died, you died. We are marked, Trinity, you are marked by his death. Now this is much... I mean, it's true. We can say Jesus died for my sins. Yes, that's true. We can sing songs like that and celebrate that, but there's more. Woodhouse says Christ's death was so effectively for us that it can be said that it was our death. How closely are we associated with Jesus? We are so closely associated with Jesus, Trinity, that when he died on the cross, we can say we died too. And that sounds powerfully strange. And the reason it sounds strange, here's why it sounds strange, it's because it's from another world. This isn't, this isn't like what, chapter, what verse 8 says. This is not philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition. This is the opposite. See, human tradition, that, we hear it and that sounds, oh, that makes sense. Here, we hear something completely different. Where else can we say when someone else dies, we die too? We don't. We can't. Not here. But, but here we do. We are now marked out. When he died, we died. Jesus' death was our death. And that's not all. Verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. So let's, for those of you keeping score at home, here's what we have. When he died, we died. When he rose, we rose. When he was buried, we were buried. Now, how can we miss out if we're associated with just this Jesus? We don't. We don't. We're not able to understand who we are if we don't understand who Jesus is. We're just not. This is who you are. If you're a believer, you are associated with him, inextricably associated with him. You have associated yourself in his life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. Jesus, he is God. Jesus fills us. We are in Jesus. And lastly, the reason that we can know for sure that there is no possible way that we could ever miss out is that we are alive with him. Jesus, the God of all things, who has united himself to us, reminds us in verse 13 that we are alive with him. Verse 13, and you, again, plural, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God 
made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, to be dead in our trespasses does not mean that our body was a corpse. It means that we had no relationship with God, and in him is life. Apart from him is death. We did not have a relationship with God prior to knowing Jesus, but yet God, what does it say here? God made us alive together with him. That means two things. First, he is the one who's made us alive. Second, we would not have spiritual life if Christ was not raised. If Christ was still in his grave, we should just go home and watch football. But he's not. God acted in history to raise Jesus. He acted in your history to make you alive. Now, recognize this. We're not made alive by praying a prayer. We're not made alive by raising a hand. We're not made alive by signing a card or being baptized. We're not made alive by going to church or believing rightly. We're not made alive by improving ourselves or getting religion. We're made alive by what? God made, God made us alive together with him. He's the primary worker. Do we have to exert faith? Yes. But he's the one who makes us alive. And we're alive because Jesus is alive. But we're not just alive, untethered from everything, like a complete free agent. We're alive with him. And we can have life because our many sins that once caused us to be dead are now finally and fully forgiven. We saw that at the end of verse 14. Having forgiven us, or at the beginning, or end of verse 13, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, forgiveness is one of those flimsy little words that the way we use it, we can throw it around. It's flimsy and it's like plastic. You know, have you ever said someone asked forgiveness? You say, yeah, I forgive you, but yet inside you still harbor something against them. And it's just this plastic, brittle little word that we throw around. That's not the kind of word we see here. Verse 14, having forgiven us all our trespasses. You know, if you're like me, aware of many of my trespasses, I think, how do I know? How do I know? We Christians, we're aware of our sin. How do we know that all of those things that we've done wrong in word and deed, in thought and in action, how do we know that they're all, all those trespasses are forgiven? Just because he says so, Yes, but notice what he says next. Here's the how of forgiveness. Here's how. Look again. Having forgiven us all our trespasses, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it, to the cross. So do you understand what he did here? What we're seeing here in verse 14 is this. Jesus, at his death, at his death, the record of all of our sins have been forcefully and forever canceled. Here's, so that doesn't mean, listen, forgiveness is not just like, yeah, you did wrong, let's move on. Or, I'll forget 
No, forgiveness is making a list of every single thing that we've ever done, right, wrong, indifferent. Those things we didn't do that we should have done. Those things we didn't say when we should have said them. Those times we spoke when we should have been silent. Those times when we were silent when we should have spoken. The jealousy that burns in our hearts, the, the rage and the envy that can come up, those things are real. And what we see here is our God watching all of our lives and making a detailed list of each of those sins. That record of debt is real. The guilt is real. The shame is real. The sins are there. He's not saying those aren't real sins. He's not saying don't worry about them. But what is he saying? Something much better. Those real sins, I've recorded every one, but they're canceled. They're canceled. That's awesome. Verse 14, the record of the debt that you owe is canceled. That's so much better. It's so much better to have everything that you've ever done known by God and canceled than to try to hide some things to the side, wondering what's he going to do if he finds this out? Because he will. I mean, he's omnipotent and he's above time. Can't hide anything from him. It's better. It's better. Well, it's, even as, as, as believers, we can, we're not hiding anything from him. He sees our record. We stand guilty. And notice the word that Paul uses. He says, we, the record of debt that stood against us, us with its legal demands. You know what a legal demand is? It's here's what must happen because of what we did. These are trespasses. These are sins. These are trespasses against a holy God. We're created to glorify him in everything we do, and we have trespassed against him. Guilt is real. The shame is justified. So what is, canceled? what is written against us? This is every word spoken in anger, every thought baked in lust, every unspoken bitterness, every unsavory action, every vain imagination. There is a record of that in, from your life. Now, if you knew a document like that existed, that described your endmost thoughts and your secret desires, those agendas that you hide inside that you won't even recognize for yourself, if you knew that there was a document like that, what would you want to do? You would do anything you could to get rid of it. You would want to make sure that it couldn't or wouldn't fall into the wrong hands. You'd want to hide that document away in a dark corner somewhere that only you knew about. But hiding a record doesn't make it false. We need something better than a hiding place for the record of our sins. We need an execution point. We need a way to erase them and destroy them. And brothers and sisters, that's what the cross is. That's the place of cancellation. See, one of the reasons Christianity focuses on Jesus crucified you ever wonder about this? Jesus crucified is not because that cross looks nice and we can have nice necklaces for jewelry. It's because there, 
the extensive record of debt is destroyed for any who are in him. The record of all our wrongdoing was destroyed along with Jesus on the cross. If Jesus didn't die, the record of your sins didn't either. So it's good news that the one in whom the full deity of God dwelt bodily, it's good news that he really died. If you believe, if you believe those lies that say Jesus only appeared to die, well, then what you're saying is my sins are only appeared to be forgiven. It's fake. But the payment of your sins was put to Jesus. The guilt destroyed. The record of those sins completely obliterated. You see, justice demands for these records that we all have. Justice demands death. And one stepped forward for all of us and said, I will step into that place. Bring their evidence against me. Bring that record against me. And Jesus stood and was raised up and was destroyed. And the record of them is no more. Isn't it amazing that instead of being wiped away, our sins were wiped away? Isn't it amazing that Jesus, the one who deserved all blessing, received wrath from God so that we might receive what he deserved? Our sins, though they be many, are now fully canceled. How canceled? They are so canceled. They're so canceled that no power in the universe can find record of your wrongs. In fact, this is the means by which he disarmed. He disarmed our enemies. Look at verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing them over, triumphing them in him. He disarmed Satan. Jesus rose from the dead and disarmed all those rulers and authorities. The word Satan means accuser. Satan is going to accuse us, but yet the record is gone. The records of our wrongs are canceled. He may hurl accusations at us, but we are forgiven. God has no record. Now, that doesn't mean that when we sin against someone, we say, well, since it's obliterated on the cross, I don't have to ask forgiveness for you. Well, that's not true. We need to make right with other people. But before a holy God, our, the record of our sins is canceled. There is no record of our sins. How much better is the cancellation of our sins than the hiding and covering up of the record of these sins? If we could record, if we could hide the, the, if we could hide the debt in the heavens, he could find them there. If we could put them on the wings of the morning to hide them in the uttermost parts of the seas, he would find them there. If we covered them with darkness, we know dark is not dark to him, he could find them there. If we chartered a ship and zoomed off to deposit the record in distant galaxies, he would find them there. If we could burrow deep into granite and mountain, a mountain and hide 
the record of wrongs under tons of rock, he would find them there. If we could commission a legion of angels with flaming swords to watch over our records of, record of wrongs, they would do no good against him. If we could hide our record of wrongs in the abode of the dead, he could find them there. But yet, we have something better. Our record has been destroyed when Jesus was destroyed by God. He knew all of what we've done, did, have done, past, present, and future. And when he cried, it is finished. He was saying something about his ministry, but he's also saying something about the record of our sins. How can we have FOMO with a Savior like that? <laughs> how can we miss out? Really, how can we miss out with a Savior like that? A forgiveness that is unshakable. How sure is your forgiveness? As sure as the death of Jesus. What do we miss out on when we, when we, when we think, oh, if I follow Jesus wholeheartedly, I might miss out on X, Y, and Z. We miss out on nothing. We miss out on a bunch if we don't focus on Jesus and what he's done for us. You see, we ought to be the kind of people who recognize how much Jesus has done for us and be afraid that there are other people out there who miss out on this. Because there are people out there in our, in our, in our work, at work, at school, at play, everywhere, where we have people who are right now under the wrath of a holy God. And they think happiness comes from health and having the right friends, getting enough money, getting good education, having appropriate res respect and professional success, maybe gaining a happy family. But we know that is not true because the record of wrongs that they are accumulating, God knows. And they will miss out if they do not know Jesus. And that's true as well for you if you're here and not a follower of Jesus. You see, Christians follow Jesus, and know that when we follow him, we put ourselves in his hands and say, you do what's best for me. And as we do that, we know we will not miss out. Now, we have our ups and our downs, and we have fears and anxieties that crash in upon us. But Jesus knows what's best. Because if you have Christ, you don't miss out on anything. What can you, church, what can we miss out on if we have Jesus? Nothing. 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 Let's pray.